there's always a FinReg Angle, the podcast providing you with the latest news and commentary on financial regulation. Brought to you by Global Custodian. Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of season four of There's Always a FinReg Angle. I'm John Watkins, editor of Global Custodian, and I'm joined virtually as always by a pair of FinReg experts, Sean Tuffy and Virginia O'Shea. How are you both? Good, good. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I like that you asked me it back now. I need to prepare. <laughs> um, Virginia, how are you? Not too bad. A bit tired. Yeah. Busy week. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't going to mention that we're recording this at like four o'clock on a Friday. I, I hope the energy we would give off would, would overcome it. But, um, but look, we're going to do our best. And we've got a lot to discuss. There's been some, well, a lot of, a lot of news. But also, I've seen you two both on the circuit, um, engaged in a lot of speaking uh, engagements. Uh, Sean, where have you been and what have you been up to? Yeah, so I uh, recently spoke uh, at a uh, breakfast briefing on governance matters and for for Irish companies and funds and talking about the sort of regulatory pressures coming from both Europe uh, as well as Central Bank of Ireland as sort of stepping up its focus on governance and introducing sort of a, um, it's called SEER, which is essentially similar to the UK uh, SMCR regime for, for management. So that's got everyone in Ireland all abuzz. So I was talking about that to a, to a group of people. That's any big takeaways? Um, well, I was asked, I was asked and I got to be the bad guy. So I was asked if I thought uh, SEER was necessary and I said no, but it was too late. It didn't really matter. <laughs> and I, well, I, my main point was that like, if you, the UK is already looking to sort of change SMCR a little bit because it does create bad incentives and you end up with these sort of like poison chalice roles that no one wants in companies because really no one wants to take be the, the person on the line for like entire operations so I, I think there is some softening coming in the uk so i caution the central bank that they probably should take that into account as they finalize the the rules yeah great i'm sure you're popular there <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Virginia, what about you? Um, I, I, I see you're at the InvestOps conference, chairing it, in fact. Yes, I did two days of chairing that, which was which was great. Actually, a lot of uh, COOs from different buy-side firms talking about all the things that they're dealing with and all the challenges they've had. I mean, there was a, like a panel on regulation, um, or like a discussion on regulation, lots of discussion on the floor. I got a load of questions about T plus one, which was good, oh, as yeah. in, what the hell is this T plus one thing? When is it coming? <laughs> <laughs> what do we need to do? Is there anything we need to do? Um, which was uh, interesting. Uh, I, I think a lot of a lot of the firms there haven't really looked at it as in in depth. Some had, but um, I th- lots of uns- unsurprisingly, a lot of them said, uh, "Well, the custodian's problem, right?" Went, oh, <laughs> amazing, brilliant. But, but uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of the regulatory panel, there was a lot of discussion about Dora the Explorer. Um, yeah. I was quite surprised by how much, how many discussions about operational resilience there were, actually. Um, and, and again, not everyone had heard of Dora um, mm. or didn't know much about it. They'd heard of it, but didn't know much about it. So I had a lot of questions there on how does it apply? Um, what do we need to do? What do we need to think about? And then quite a lot of panic looks <laughs> afterwards. Yeah. Wow. And. With the T plus one, did you give a bit of anyone that was like, what is it and when do we need to start preparing? Did you give it a bit of a see me after? <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to answer this in front of everyone, but <laughs> come and see me after. 
To some extent, yeah. I mean, obviously, I've written a lot about it. Like, I pointed them in the direction of all the documents that people have put out, like the DTCC and stuff, because a lot of them hadn't read that stuff and they yeah. hadn't really engaged with other people. So, um, yeah, I mean, again, there was also, actually thinking about it, there was a lot of chat about ESG, unsurprisingly, as well. Um, and uh, it looks like a lot of buy-siders are going to start lobbying, or they are, in fact, lobbying um, ESMA for uh, ratings and data providers to be more heavily regulated because they're ha- holding the can for a lot of this stuff in terms of greenwashing. And when the data's crap when it's fed into their systems, it's the, it's the data's fault and it's not theirs was their sort yeah. of um, angle on it. Yeah. I, I heard the term green hushing for the first time uh, the other day. Have you heard that one? I, yeah. I, I knew the concept of kind of playing down your ESG-ness, but uh, I hadn't heard green hushing before. Yes. Yes. Ugh. <laughs> add it to the buzzwords we need to um but yeah virginia i mean from reading the blog i mean when i've been to things like fund forum and invest ops before you get these real high caliber kind of ceos from from like big time asset managers but the problems always seem to be the same it's always talent retention it's always um esg it's always data it's it's very very same are they, they always seem to be like really desperate for help and support from their providers that maybe they're not getting. Yeah, I mean, there was, uh, given that there was not a single custodian in the room, there was a lot of moaning. Um, yeah. <laughs> unsurprisingly <laughs> about they're really slow, they don't do what we want them to do, they're not taking on, uh, you know, feedback enough, they're not doing enough in terms of being proactive on regulation. I mean, it was it was sort of a long, long list of things that they were complaining about, which is, I mean, it always happens when you get people in a room um, and they've got similar providers. So, uh, and there was some interesting chats about, you know, technology as well, um, as in, is a full front to back offering actually what you want? And a lot of people said, no. <laughs> so, oh. um, I know that there's an industry trend for everybody to think that that's what everyone's going towards, but I actually don't, didn't seem to be the case, even with some of the larger asset managers. They were like, well, if, if you have what, just one provider, that's only one provider to fall over and then you're stuffed when it comes to Dora. Um, and you're also beholden to them in terms of, of uh, costs because they can yeah. they can hold you over a barrel. Wow. Okay. Um, I've got a lot of thoughts on that. I don't know how. I don't know if we're <laughs> going to end up the uh, episode. I mean, just just quickly, I, I, all those front to back initiatives launched. Right, everyone was signed up with BlackRock, with um, Bloomberg, with, with SimCorp. But I don't know. I mean, State Street are quite public with their mandates, but. They've taken a long time to roll out and onboard, and the number hasn't really moved for a long time. But saying that, they are announcing mandates at least, whereas the others I haven't really heard much from. So it's, I, I agree. I heard the same thing again at Fun Forum last year. Um, yeah. but, you know, if you read our magazines and, and look at various marketing campaigns from some of these custodians, you'd be lured into thinking front to back is what the asset managers want. But I mean, I think a lot of them were saying that just private assets and, and you know, even subcategories of private assets are all managed on different systems because none of the big systems seem to do a very good job in those alternative spaces, um, for one thing, for example. Mm. So, um, and, you know, they're just not growing or scaling and um, adapting existing platforms fast enough in certain areas. Was, was kind of the, the pushback. They're not listening enough to smaller or mid-tier asset managers who want things changed. Yeah. Um, they only listen to the big asset managers. Yeah, I mean, yeah. 
to wearing my, having spent 20 years in the custodian industry, I feel I should stick up for these guys a little bit. I mean, <laughs> like the buy side beats down custodian banks to like charging them half a nickels for service and they get all mad when they can't pour money into their pet projects. It's a little rich, to be honest. I mean, like I, I think absolutely custody banks could be quicker in certain elements of it, but I think in particular, I think it's fair to say mid-sized asset managers probably have a harder time with custodian banks this time, but these days. But that's probably a factor of economics and how who you know how the the cost to serve uh, is generated. So I can I totally understand the frustration, but I think it's a little naive to think you can every year negotiate down your fees from your service providers and then expect them to continue bending over backwards to give you everything you ask for. Oh, very true. Yeah, I mean, it's not my opinion. It's just really... Right. No, I know I wasn't. I just felt like, you know, someone should stick up for the custodians here. Good point. I feel maybe that should have been my role as a global custodian editor. But Sean stepped in, the night and shining on. <laughs> um, and yeah, and Virginia, thanks for writing the blog on... Um, you know what? I, I'm not going to get the reference right. So can you... The, the big purple giant. I, I think... Maybe I'm showing my age by not knowing the reference, but you made a reference to an old song. Yes, it's just they were talking, there was a lot of chat about the purple people, um, which again, I had not heard uh, as a thing, but purple people apparently are people that everyone's looking for the purple people who are um, equally good at technology and operations and business side. So it means they're a very adaptable, sort of a generalist um, that can come into the business that has either experience in other bits of the business and can apply them into operations or the other way around that has operations experience and goes into the business and kind of champions operations. So um, I guess you could apply it to compliance as well, I imagine. But um, it just kept making me think of that. What's the 60s song? Uh, the the one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater. Um <laughs> Which, uh, granted, if you've never heard the song, you wouldn't. Know, you'd think I've gone mad. So sorry, John. <laughs> Sean, please come to Virginia's rescue here. I mean, I haven't heard of it. But... Yeah, I mean, like I grew up listening to oldies radio when I was a kid. It's a, it's a fun novelty song. So I got it. I understood the reference. <laughs> That's good. Um, so on on that topic of, of staffing, though, I mean, some things I've been hearing with AI is that. Yeah, do you either is that AI talent out there? Do you have to retrain? You know, people have spent years trying to get data scientists and then data analysts, but that's a different skill set. So, do you retrain those? Do you, you know, hire in new talent? Do you take like you said, Virginia, from from other areas of the business? Like, what's what's the kind of best way if if people are really exploring artificial artificial intelligence more? Well, I think the tech side, from from what I was hearing, there is a, it's a bit better the job market now because so many of the large firms, the large tech providers, have let people go. That yeah. it's a bit bit easier to find people. Whether they want to work on a back office or middle office project is another thing, but um, certainly they're they're out there, um, and and certainly they're they're you know ops are increasingly interested in AI. Although on the reg front, I think we're talking about FinReg, um, the Parliament. Um, took one step closer to putting through that AI, uh, what do you want to call it? Uh, AI level, uh, European level AI reg this, yeah. this week, right, Sean? Yeah, they did. Yeah, it's moving with like pretty remarkable speed, to be honest. But yeah, they did mm -hmm. take another big step towards regulating that, regulating AI in Europe. I mean, I think 
as for like, you know, back office functions, be it buy side or sell side, sell side or custodians using AI. I mean, I think the three of us and probably a lot of our listeners are old enough to remember a decade ago when the promise of RPA sort of a lot of the hype was the exact same and it never really materialized. So I think, not to say AI can't be beneficial, but like experience tells us you need to hire people who know what they're doing and it's still going to cost a lot of money to run and you just don't sort of plug in like AI and it just goes ahead. So I think there's probably a long learning curve to come to really achieve any sort of meaningful efficiency gains out of it. So I'd say we'll be, we'll be hearing a lot more about people looking to deploy it and the promise of it before we see any real use cases for a while, I'd say. Yeah, especially with regs coming in saying, they even mentioned generative AI in it, actually. I think they probably added that <laughs> over the right. last couple of months just to just to say it's going to come with additional transparency requirements. So you're going to have to report about what content's going into it, what model you're using, how you're making sure it's not illegal content um, and it's not copyrighted information. So I, I think that's those kind of legal hoops uh, are going to make things difficult for people trying to test it out to some degree. Yeah. Yeah, we, we were talking to some front office folk the other day and it was all about, yeah, look, AI is great, but we're worried about the transparency, the explainability of it. Uh, so they, they kind of pump the brakes a little bit from, from their side. Yeah, I think everybody's doing the same. Yeah. Um, like I, I, there was a lot of hesitance to, to talk about exactly where they were using it, to, to be fair, on the stage from, from a lot of the COOs yeah. for that very reason, I think. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. You know, we, we keep referencing AI and, and chat GPT and things like that. And then it's like, oh, yeah, so what have you guys used it for? And we're like, yeah, we asked it to explain transfer agency in the voice of a pirate. And uh, <laughs> unfortunately, not very useful. Uh, but thanks for really reminding me there, Jenny, that we're a FinRig podcast. We kind of got sidetracked a little bit at the start. But uh, just to round off latest news, I think this is very current. Yesterday, I think it came out that there were some fines for more communication issues. Um, Virginie, it was uh, HSBC, I think, was it? And someone else? Yeah. Uh, Nova Scotia Bank was one of them in the CFTC find and the SEC find. Um, is it Scotia Capital and, Scotia Capital, yeah. and HSBC? Yeah. So for, for WhatsApp um, violations, I think we've had a few, haven't we, on the WhatsApp front? Quite a lot. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, yeah, certainly non non standard communication tools should not be used. I think is the uh, the stern sort of reminder here, and the, you know, several millions down the pan for for allowing the use of those tech, you know, those technologies for communications with clients. So uh, I think there's a, a painful lesson learned. I, I'm sure there's going to be many more of these because certainly it yeah. was used a fair amount, right? Yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty ubiquitous, I'd say, for the last five years at least to sort of using mm. whatsapp or whatever to communicate with clients and stuff so yeah i mean it's going to be the gift that keeps giving from a mm. uh, regulatory fine perspective for a while i think it'll be curious it'll be interesting i mean you hear stories i want to say morgan stanley said they clawed back some bonuses from people who got caught doing it mm. so it'll be interesting to see what how firms look to enforce and stop this happening going forward you know i'm sure now there are sort of strongly worded emails and memos being circulated but if they sort of take the next step almost sort of a back to the future step and sort of go back to sort of dedicated work devices because i think a lot of the problem was many of these firms sort of went to you know using a work app for your for your mail but keeping it on your 
personal device, which makes it a lot easier to blend personal and private life. So I wonder if we'll go back to a, an old school, here's your work phone with the apps you're allowed to use. If you use anything else, you're fired sort of approach, which makes it at least easier to police. Yeah, well, it's interesting, though. I mean, if, if you do get fined by your company, you could just turn and do a whistleblow on them, given what was it, the most record, the highest ever SEC payout this month, wasn't it? Was it $279 million to one yeah. lucky, lucky grass out there? Jesus. Yeah, I mean, that almost had to be, that probably was one of these WhatsApp fines, because those, those are the only fines that are so big um, to get that sort of payout. But yeah, like, I mean, I think anyone who's worked in any part of the financial industry has used personal email or probably more likely text or WhatsApp to do work. And so like, it is a huge cultural shift. So I think it's gonna be a while and you'll probably have a few more people throwing in the whistleblowing attempts to get some, get some money out of the whole thing. Yeah. I'm just looking up now that the December 20th, 2021, JP Morgan fined $125 million uh, over staff using email text and WhatsApp for security business matters. So yeah, just two fines kind of covered that whistleblowers payment. Right. And there was a big like group settlement like a year ago. Like there was a huge one yeah. where all the banks chipped in. So yeah, I think it's just, but we haven't even, we're only now starting to see the buy side firms get caught by it. So like, it's just going to keep running for a while, I think, at least in the U S. Yeah. yeah. Um, Oh, well, yeah. Bank of America, 200 million fine. I'm going down the rabbit hole here. Anyway, we should, uh... <laughs> it's easily done. Easily yeah. Done. Lots of big numbers. Um, Sean, the big one this week, a uh, lot of action going on in the SEC, which you can summarize, but I'd love it if you could first start off by talking about kind of what's gone on with this form PF. I think that's for our audience, probably the, one of the biggest changes over there. Yeah. So that's probably the big change. It was notable for two reasons. I mean, it was expected, but so when the, final rule was released um they the sec removed any reference to digital assets and cryptos the original proposal had included crypto in the reporting um and they pulled it out presumably out of fear they didn't want to look like they were defining what a digital asset was that they were still in the middle of contemplating their larger sort of rule set or their ongoing legal action so that was sort of notable from the crypto community who was I think they were all a little disappointed because it would have given them some clarity finally on some stuff. But then, yeah, the form PF uh, reporting changes, it's really just sort of the volume. More people need to report. You need to report a lot more detail on sort of your strategies, um, your investment strategies. And I think it's like you have 72 hours, you have a notable event that you need to let the, uh, the regulator know about. Uh, and it's mm -hmm. all sort of driven by this idea that... <clears throat> Regulators don't have enough of a handle on the private fund or hedge fund asset world, um, and sort of it could, which could represent a sort of systemic risk. Now, I don't believe that's the case, but you know, never let a good crisis go to go to waste. So Gensler's pushing through these reporting that he's wanted for a while, and I think it will be. I mean, form PF is a lot of work for a lot of firms. So I think it will be to get your get firms in order to sort providing the extra data on a regular basis will obviously be a pretty big body of work for um, alternative funds. And, you know, in particular, private funds and hedge funds tend to be smaller and less robust when it comes to these sort of back office functions anyway. 
yeah, I think we'll, uh, we've got a fun services special magazine coming up this summer, which we'll, we'll dive into this a lot more. But I imagine they're not really used to these kind of arduous reporting requirements. Do you think there's kind of scope to have more standards in this area for them? Would that, would that help the process? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think so. The form, I mean, they've been doing form PF or Annex 4 out of AFMD for only, you know, a decade now. So it's not unheard of, but I think it's just sort of, they're not used to this sort of intrusive level of explain us to your strategy or having to report stuff in the event of an emergency. So I think that will be sort of difficult, but I think, you know, kind of like we talked about with Tifa Swan a couple of podcasts ago, there's always hope that a big regulatory push will encourage people to invest in their back office processes to make them more flexible and robust for future changes. Because I don't think I, with as far as I know, regulation isn't going to recede anytime soon. So they'll likely have to do changes again. So, you know, it's an opportunity to sort of get, see where they are in terms of creating a more sort of flexible system and environment. And, and is this more, like you say, it's, it's been in place for, what, for over a decade or so, but is the ramping up outside of Gary Gensler wanting to just, you know, put transparency on everything? Is it is it uh, Archegos related, GameStop related? Is that what, kind of what it stems from? Yeah, I think that's I think that's what's driven this specific round. So in particular, GameStop and um, Archegos definitely um, was the motivating factor beyond the fact that it's just Gary Gensler wants to do it. I mean, we've talked about it. I've had a few rants on this podcast about Sir Gensler does have a ton of stuff down the pipeline he just wants to do. So this is just one of those things he wanted to 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 get get over the line. So um, it's out there. And the other big SEC thing this week was the release of the responses to the custody rule that uh, was that's specifically an SBF or FTX related response. Yes. And, it's done. A, he's done a remarkable feat, Gary Gensler, in sort of uniting everybody from the NYFDS to the crypto industry to some traditional custodians to advisors to hate one single proposal. Like no one likes this thing. So it'll be interesting to see where we go from here. Because I received criticism pretty much from pretty much all sides about the proposal. So I think that's going to be something obviously to watch. It's going to have a huge impact on our listeners and, you know, their businesses, but it's going to be a huge debate. Yeah. Yeah. We did a, a, a deep dive on it a while back and, you know, I don't know what it does to the kind of digital asset native custodians, but even, even the incumbents and the big guys are pretty beat off about it. Um, you know, what they have to kind of back up having those assets on their, their balance sheet yeah. with this is quite, quite incredible. Um, so yeah, no, more. Yeah, Gary, and, and Virginia rushed to Gary Gensler's defense. I was going to call him Gary there. I don't think we're on first name terms, but Gary's defense. <laughs> Gaza. Gaza, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's not Gaza. Uh, I'm sure you, you've both bumped into him before at various things. He's, he's I mean, maybe he listens. Maybe he's going to check in with us at some point and say, yeah, you, you, you three can call me, call me Gaza. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt that. <laughs> Just going to say, it's so funny hearing all this stuff with the crypto side. Whereas, you know, at the, at the conference I was at, everybody was like, "All of our institutional investors think crypto is poison at the moment." So <laughs> there's all this stuff being built out yeah. for them, and then, you know, with the expectation that they'll come. But I'm not sure when it comes to crypt cryptocurrencies, they will come back. From what I was hearing, but you know, I could be wrong. Well, I mean, not to go down this road too much, but obviously, last year. 
all these digital asset custody launches from the big custodians, big asset services, they put very important people, <laughs> very good yeah. top talent in charge of those units. And then obviously FTX happened and now there's kind of bigger stuff going on in the world. And I don't know if we're going to have a quiet period now with it where we just, you know, everyone's talking about tokenization. No one wants to talk about crypto. Um, yeah, it's it's just interesting. It's it's very much quiet down on that front. But then, like I said, you've got some very, um, you know, high level talented staff now heading up those units. Yeah. I mean, we, we've talked about it when it happened. It was always, custodians always had a sort of, or in a bind, and they had to sort of take a risk and when to build stuff out. But this goes back to my rant at the beginning of the podcast about the buy side complaining about custodians not necessarily ha having the right solutions. But, you know, everyone went all in on crypto because that's what they, their, their clients told them they needed. And then their clients pulled back and they're stuck with these divisions that and capabilities that no one's using yet. It's kind of, you know, it's a little catch-22 if you're a custodian trying to build like solutions that are at the bleeding edge of sort of investment. But they said there was client interest. Was there? Or was it box ticking? We have to we have to do this. Well, that's the sixty-four thousand dollar question. I mean, I think like I think there was certainly some client interest. I mean, I don't think that's untrue because it's easy to think now, you know, a year after we're almost a year to the day, give or take, when Luna fell apart and the whole crypto winter really started. So it's a very different world than it was a year ago. But it's not unbelievable to think a year, 18 months ago, that there was real institutional interest uh, hmm. in probing into digital assets crypto. And we shouldn't forget that, like, like Fidelity is still going full steam ahead, as far as I know. You know, there are, they're just doing, doing it themselves. But, like, there are still institutions, like, traditional finance institutions out there doing it. They're just very quiet in their sort of progress about it. So it, I think it's out there. It's just one of those things, unless you're really into it, it's going to be put on the back burner for the time being. Yeah, well, how much interest from was from the institutional side was FOMO, though? I mean, this is the issue, right? Because it's, it's yeah. a very herd-like herd mentality um, out there. So fear of, of missing out on something could cause people to go down routes that they, <laughs> they shouldn't have gone down. Um, but I, I, it's interesting. We'll, we'll, we'll see. I mean, from what I was hearing, it didn't sound like crypto was in, in the cards. But um, I, would, I would say tokenization certainly a lot of interest. But there are yeah. really basic problems with tokenized assets and the fact the accounting systems can't deal with the number of decimal places you need for for some of the uh, fractionalized things, right? Um, <laughs> stupid, but that yeah. holds back a progress if you, if you can't actually account for the damn thing. I, I guess you got to remember as well that it was a different time. Like that back then, custodians were in a different space. This is pre kind of Ukraine war. It was pre banking crisis. Um, you know, think about the custodians, they, their assets under custody were going up a lot, but their revenues were either flat or kind of dropping. So they were looking at these new avenues to, to actually make money in the future. Now interest rates gone up a little bit and, you know, they're, they're actually doing fairly well. Uh, like you say, Sean, it's good to have the unit there. It might be used in some time, but there was certainly one CEO that said, you know, I don't actually know if we're going to make money off this for four, four or five years, but, you know, we need to have it. We need to be there. So I think you're right. There were some clients that wasn't artificially drummed up, but uh, just interesting to see where those units are now. And there, yeah. there, there are a lot of um, kind of initiatives going on. We, we kind of did two articles this week about these kind of working groups coming together or these, these consortiums or networks. Uh, you probably saw the one um, with Digital Asset and then we wrote about one with Basonic yesterday. They've got kind of 45 custodians in a working group. Digital Asset have got you know, tens of the 
biggest kind of players from Goldman to BNP um, in that network of networks. Canton, I think it's called. That was pretty significant. So maybe it's just like stepping back from the big launches and, and putting the big important people in charge and just actually working on it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably it. I mean, but as you said, like they need to have, if you're in the global custodian fund servicing space, some level of digital asset tokenization skills is going to be required, I think, for better or worse. So I think it's, I think having on the shelf is no harm. It's important to remember like, you know, 10, 15, within the last 10, 15 years, everyone built out ETF capability, which a lot of it was largely on spec. I mean, ETFs are now dominating the world, but they weren't a given, you know, in the late aughts. So it was a similar, people just had to make time their commitment to it and figure out how they were going to make money on it later in some ways. So it's not unusual. It's just this time they sort of bet on a technology that in an asset class that has a lot of other sundry list of issues with it. Yeah. Well, we're getting to the 30 minute mark and the 4.30 mark as well yeah. on Friday. So um, <laughs> well, in danger of uh, going on and on. Uh, thanks both for your thoughts today. Uh, Virginia, what, what are you working on at the moment? What else? Um, unsurprisingly, uh, I'm going to be working on a lot of stuff to do with uh, buy side trends and operations trends. So there'll be some work out on that. Uh, much more to come on that front. And and to be fair, I'm actually looking at tokenization as well. So I'm, um, I'm keeping my eye on it. Okay, we'll do a tokenization pod in the, in the near future. <laughs> Maybe with some guests. Um, brilliant. Sean, uh, where can people find your thoughts and views? Well, as, as always, follow me on Twitter at uh, SMTuffy or... If you're into FinReg memes, uh, FinReg memes on Instagram. Okay, super. Uh, a lot of the things we discussed today, we have some deep dive features on Global Custodian about, um, such as Form PF and Front to Back, which wasn't necessarily uh, expected to be talked about today, but we certainly years ago, we went uh, deep into the weeds of, of Front to Back. So uh, do, do check out those features. And a uh, little plug for Global Custodian, we are hosting our first ever Singapore, uh, well, first of a Leaders in Custody Asia Awards in Singapore on May the 25th. Um, we have a sold-out room, so I'm not pitching. I'm just letting you know. It's uh, it's going to be a good one. <laughs> Keep an eye out for, uh, for, for pictures and, and follow-ups of that. And, uh, yeah, thanks to everyone for uh, your continued support and listening to this podcast. But for now, Virginia, Sean, thanks very much, and uh, look forward to catching up again soon. You were listening to There's Always a Finreg Angle podcast from Global Custodian. Stream on Google and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or catch up wherever you get your podcasts from.